Hello, everyone. Welcome to the CrocCast podcast. I'm your host, Nate. And today I'm joined by Phil Wolf of the Nethverse Initiative, uh, Snakes and Stogies, Venom Exchange Radio, and probably some other stuff I never heard of. So, Phil, <laughs> welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, man. I really appreciate it. So, uh, want to tell us how you first kind of got into reptiles and kind of what uh, led you up to this point? Uh, yeah, I mean, very similar story. We all like dinosaurs. We all get a leopard gecko, you know, the, the, the norm. But uh, I started off keeping lizards predominantly because, let's face it, mom wasn't into snakes. But there's that old thing of, well, when you're 18, you can have whatever you want. And then you turn 18 and you start to get whatever you want. And uh, I originally was working at Underground Reptiles retail store right out of high school. And one of the things they have there is a venomous, you know, display. It's like a corner of the store that has all venomous species on display. And one of the guys that was working with me was like, hey, man, you really should, you know, take some some hours and lessons with some of the venomous guys because, you know, you're opening the store. You don't want to come in and God forbid something gets loose. You need to know how to handle it. And I thought it was kind of a eh, whatever. And I started doing it and I got hooked. And uh, I've been keeping reptiles now for about 25 years and venomous for probably 15 or 18 years straight. And uh, it kind of snowballed, man. You know, just you meet like-minded individuals, you learn as much as you can, and it just gets better and better. So uh, what first got you into podcasting? Well, it's funny you mentioned that. So I never really was a podcast guy and like listening to it, you know. And I heard people have it. And I mean, I come from the days when everyone had the little tiny micro podcast playing Apple device that they put on their armband when they go jogging and whatnot. I don't even remember what the heck it was called. But I liked radio. I liked radio shows. And everyone was like, well, dude, you like radio shows. Like, you should listen to podcasts. It's like a radio show, but you can listen to it anytime you want. You can pause it, you know, whatever. And there's a ton of reptile ones. So I started listening and, uh, you know, I found NPR found a couple other ones and then I stumbled across the herpetoculture podcast and I actually found the herpetoculture podcast on Instagram and uh I had messaged I didn't know it was Justin at the time but I had messaged Justin Smith and I was like hey man I love what you're doing you know that I'm I'm becoming a fan you know and him and I started chatting and uh you know I like cigars he likes cigars I like snakes he likes snakes and we started talking and we started talking on the phone and we became really good friends and uh we were having these crazy in-depth conversations about everything, a husbandry and breeding. And I mean, you name it, we talked about it and two, three hour long conversations. So, I mean, I'm in South Florida. He's up in you know South Carolina and he had the herpetoculture podcast with, with Jake and it was doing great. And he's like, Hey man, why don't we do an Instagram live? And that way we can still have our conversation, but there's a lot of good stuff we're talking about, whether it's coming out of us or it's conversations that people might want to join in on. And we tried to do Instagram live and it just didn't work. And we're like, you know what? Let's just make another podcast. And we called it snakes and stogies. And we figured let's do a live show where we can talk a little bit about cigars and tobacco. And then the rest of it will just be a live podcast talking about whatever we can bring guests on and, and just have fun with it make more of a relaxed show and not so much a, a straight up you know interview or documentary style whatever it's just a relaxed chill talk about snakes reptiles amphibians whatever have a cigar and it it just snowballed from there man yeah. so and i'm guessing that's what uh kind of led into venom exchange radio then yeah absolutely so yeah i'm good friends with the npr guys as well and I was talking with, with Eric Burke, the pod father, and we were talking about how there's so many good shows out right now. And there's so many different avenues. I mean, you've got shows on snakes, turtles, lizards, aquarium stuff, crocodilians. And, uh, and there's just so much, but there really wasn't a, I don't want to say a good venomous show, but there really wasn't a specifically venomous show, not one that covered the safe handling and the active husbandry as well as some of the field work and research that's being done and and boots on the ground type stuff and i'm good friends with nipper reed and him he, he's a venomous guy too and him and i were like look let's just do it ourselves so we decided to start the venom exchange radio and uh, we've got nine episodes out right now we've only been doing it for about a year and we've tried to put out an episode every month or so um but it basically is just that it's focusing on venomous keepers venomous researchers just venomous enthusiasts and not just snakes i mean lizards heliderms and, and the like as well as arachnids spiders scorpions all kinds of stuff so 
we uh, we're hoping to have another episode probably in the next month or so, and just keep on trucking. Yeah, speaking of venomous, uh, I know you have quite a few, uh, especially ring calls. So, want to talk about all you have in your collection? Yeah, um, I I've kept a lot of different species over the years. Whether it was when I worked for wholesalers or some of the import exporters, and I've had the the opportunity or the, the blessing to have worked with hundreds of different species from around the world. And as much as I love Australian species, it's very hard to get Australian species in the United States, and they're typically very expensive. Um, and there's not a lot of them represented. And over the years working for the importers and stuff, you get a lot of African stuff. And I kind of fell in love with the African species. And I'm a big history buff. I love African history. And there's just a lot of culture involved and a lot of you know snake history involved with Africa. And my good friend, Henry Martinez, he, he told me, he's like, look, man, you've got all these different species. You really need to focus on a locality or focus on some two or three species that you really, really like, and that you could really focus on them and still have your other stuff, your odds and ends, but really focus on that. So over the past, I'd say two years, I've basically weeded out my collection so that everything is from the African continent and the Middle East, because I also have an affinity for the Middle East. So in terms of venomous stuff I'm keeping right now is I've got a, a good handful of, of wrinkles, which is the ring neck cobra, ring spinning cobra. Uh, they're their own species. They're monotypic. They are technically not a true cobra. They're in their own you know genus. And I really love them, man, because they're such a unique individual animal. They're a keeled scaled snake. So they're rough in texture. They can handle cold temperatures. They can live at higher elevations. They have a hood like a true cobra. Uh, and they stand up and and do the whole cobra dance, but they're not a cobra. They don't get very big. They only get about you know three four foot, and they're live bearing, which is incredible. So you don't have to think about eggs and all that jazz. Um, and they do spit, and it's a very rudimentary system of spitting. Uh, they're probably the oldest of the spitting cobras. I think it goes back fourteen million years is where they got it at right now. Don't quote me on that. Um, it doesn't have they don't have the ability to really aim so much as it is toss. Uh, they kind of rear up and strike, and as they strike, they throw out that venom. And uh, they have really good accuracy. They're very, very good accuracy. Don't, don't think that they don't. But it's just a very unique species of animal that's endemic to South Africa, and I've fallen in love with them. So I've got a, a good group of them. Uh, I've got some bitter species, some puffs, gaboons. Um, I have several other species of cobra. I've got uh, ashes cobra, Egyptian, or excuse me, Ethiopian cobra, which is technically the same genus and species as the Egyptian. I've got a Nubian cobra. I've got some Atheris, Squamangera, and Chlorecus. Uh, I've got a large group of Serastes serastes, the desert horned adders, uh, desert horned viper, whatever you want to call it. Uh, I've got some pygmy rattlesnakes that are from my home county, Palm Beach County, which is pretty cool. And uh, I also have Pseudocerastes fieldy, which is the, uh, I guess you'd call it a fields viper. It's a Middle Eastern viper. Uh, they're the cousin to the spider tail. So anybody who's watched National Geographic and have seen the spider tailed viper, this is the uh, non-spider tailed Israeli version. So, and uh, that's really, I mean, other than a Gila monster that I have is kind of a pet. That's pretty much covers the venomous I'm keeping right now. And I probably uh, forgot so, something. So, yeah, uh, in you know, listening to THP and venomous exchange and all that stuff. Uh, also, something you probably recently got that I want to talk about is uh, burrowing asps. Yes. Oh my gosh! How could I forget the stilettos? Wow, it's <laughs> it's been a long day, man. My apologies. So yeah, I I've always had an affinity for the the genus Atractaspis, which is the stiletto snakes, or they call them mole vipers or mole asps. Uh, this is a unique species of fossorial snake that comes from the African continent and some of the Middle East, and they're very unassuming. They're small, drab in color, blacks and browns, and they're fossorial. They live underground. Uh, they're very very opportunistic feeders. They mostly eat on small skinks, some frogs, and the occasional mammal. But they're very, very cool because their fang system and their venom delivery system is unlike any other snake on the planet. Their fangs are actually hinged at the sides of the mouth. So the fang slides out the side and there isn't so much a biting motion as it is a stabbing motion, hence the name stiletto snake. So you have this small underground snake 
that is using rodent burrows and lizard burrows and finding its prey, stabbing it with its little stiletto knife that it keeps in its sheath, and then consuming the prey. Um, I find them absolutely fascinating because there's very little to no research done on them. There's lots of literature talking about some of the physiology and species identification and, and describing different species from around the African continent, but there's nothing known about their general you know, well-being in the wild. There's nothing on breeding. There's nothing on, you know, they're obviously egg layers. Nobody knows how copulation goes. Nobody knows how long the eggs incubate for. People have done it. People have hatched out eggs, but it's a very, very unique species that gets forgotten and, or genus, excuse me, the genera that gets forgotten. Um, and there's a lot of people doing research with their venom for both pharmaceutical stuff, evolutionary stuff, and producing antivenin because it's one of the most uh, snake, how do I phrase this? It's a group of snakes that is responsible for a large majority of bites in Africa. And because of the way the venom is designed, it is essentially a digestive enzyme. It just eats away flesh and muscle and bone. And up until recently, there was no antivenin. So basically, you had to do symptom monitoring in the hospital and make sure that those symptoms and the overall well-being of the human are taken care of and kind of just let the venom do its course as it rots away your finger or your hand or your toe or your foot. So there's a lot of people in Africa that are suffering because of these snakes because we really don't know that much about them. So I figure if I have the opportunity to study them at home in my small little layman way, I'm going to try and have fun with it, you know? So that, that's my new, my new quest. Yeah. So, so switching a little gears a little bit from your venomous to your other uh, big thing, the Nefros initiative. Uh, you want to talk about knobtails? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Knobtails are great, man. So knobtails are a species, or excuse me, a group of geckos from Australia. They're endemic to Australia. There's several different species within the genus. And they're unique to other geckos because they have a distinctive knob on the end of their tail. Um, lots of people like Australian stuff. I love Australian stuff. But knobtails have always held a special place in my heart. I've always wanted them. And as a kid, I was like, man, they're really expensive. I don't know if I can do it. They're kind of like, you know, a higher echelon of keeper. And then I became an adult and I was like, wait a minute. I am a grown-up. I can do whatever I want. Let, let me try and buy some geckos and see how it goes. And I did. And then I realized that there's not a lot of information out there. And that many of the keepers in, especially in North America, they were kind of bogarting the husbandry and bogarting the, the, in, in reserving the, the knowledge for themselves or their friends. And they weren't spreading it. So I decided to make an Instagram page called knobtails.ig to kind of show people all the animals in the wild show the geckos in captivity showcase some of the breeders and to try and share some of that knowledge to the best of my ability as i learned as much as i could to kind of help people so they wouldn't necessarily have to go through some of the painstaking things that i had to go through uh and so far it's been going for almost four years now and it's just been a lot of fun you know geckos are adorable and they're fun so why not yeah so uh, how many species of nephros do you have at the moment Currently, I'm only keeping two different species. I'm keeping Nephrosynctus, which is the Bilbara banded or the northern northern banded knobtail, and Nephros vertebralis, which is the midline gecko or, or the the vertebral striped knobtail. Uh, I was trying to focus on husbandry for a while, and I realized that I bit off more than I can chew. I had too many animals. I, I wasn't taking care of them enough. So I kind of decided to cut back and focus on these two species to the best of my ability. And it's working out great. You know, I'm, I'm having a lot of fun with them. And I actually, I just hatched out my first egg for this year. And uh, that was awesome. Little, little baby only took 72 painstakingly <laughs> worrisome days. And, uh, and we're just having fun with it. You know, I, I'm sure I'll get more species. I've kept more species in the past. I've kept Amy and, um, Oh man, I'm drawing blanks now. I also keep Underwoodosaurus Millie. 
which is technically not a knobtail. It used to be in the Nephris genus. They've since been redescribed, reclassified as their own genera. Uh, and this is what we call the barking geckos or thick-tailed geckos in Australia. Uh, I've got a, a small little group of them. Those things are adorable. They're basically an Australian leopard gecko, for lack of a better word. And uh, even though they're not technically knobtails anymore, I still group them in the same. And they're they're a lot easier to keep. They're a little more tropical, a little more woodsy, not so arid, not so desert. And that's that's really about it for right now. You know, we'll see what, how things go. Time will tell. Yeah, speaking of uh, husbandry, what is it like uh, keeping the those species? Uh, it's rewarding. Um, it's work, no different than keeping any other species. I think the thing that people mistake is that they assume desert species means I don't need to care for it as much as I probably should. And that can be misleading where people think, oh, desert species, it doesn't need to drink as much, doesn't need to eat as much. It can withstand hotter temperatures. But what people fail to realize is that these animals come from very, very minute microclimates. So even though it may be 110 on the surface under the rocks or the dead tree limbs or whatever the gecko is living under, it's going to be 10, 20 degrees cooler with a higher humidity. So if people realize that it is a desert species but it still needs those temperature variation as well as a, a certain level of humidity they're super easy uh, i keep mine in racks but i fully deck out the racks sand and rock and soil and and different stones and you know pieces of bark that they can burrow and hide in and try and make it as as much as i can for a rack setting but it is easy enough that you could just keep them in a rack and most breeders do so I'm guessing like uh, most gecko species, I'm guessing it's a primarily insectivorous diet. Yeah, completely insectivorous. Um, I do mostly crickets simply because roaches are kind of a pain in the neck for me to get around here. And with these particular geckos, it's a lot of movement. So even though I will try waxworms on occasion, especially like coming up into breeding season, if it's not wiggling or moving, they're not going to hunt it. Um, so I find the crickets work best. Uh, some people do multivitamin and calcium dusting. I personally do, uh, but I will skip every two or three feedings because I don't want too much vitamins or too much calcium. I kind of like to level things out. So I'll probably skip every three, sometimes every four feedings and kind of go from there. But I, I'm mostly, I'm a, I'm a cricket guy. Yeah. And, uh, how frequently, how frequently do you feed them? Uh, I, I won't lie. Sometimes I get lazy. Sometimes I get forgetful. Usually it's two to three times a week. Sometimes only once a week, you know, prey isn't always available in the wild, but at the same time, realistically, they should be fed at least three times a week. And usually it's only a handful of crickets. Um, I try not to put too many crickets in there at one single time because in the wild, if there's an overabundance of prey items and the gecko is stressed or fearful or weary, it can escape, it can run away. But in a captive environment, like a tub or an enclosure or a vivarium, it can't run away. And I've actually seen uh, from friends that they left too many crickets in there and the animal stopped eating, it stopped drinking, it was too stressed because it had all these foreign invaders not thinking, oh, I could just eat these foreign invaders, but it had all these foreign invaders and it stressed itself out and it wound up being you know, the demise of the gecko. So it's, it's kind of a balancing act to, to the best of your ability and monitoring your animal and just being aware of how the animal eats its food. I've also had geckos that would gorge themselves on prey where I would throw in, say, five crickets, right? And then I figure, all right, it's Monday. I'll throw in five crickets. I'll give him another two or three, maybe on Wednesday or Thursday, see how he's doing. Well, that gecko ate everything. And then after six, seven days, it would actually regurgitate. The only thing, I, the best way I could describe it is like an owl pellet, basically undigested cricket parts in like a little nugget. And I realized that it's gorging itself because it has no idea when its next meal is going to be. But at the same time, it's too much food. So it winds up throwing it up. And now you've got an even bigger problem because it's throwing up those, those, that good gut bacteria. And you're basically starting from scratch. So it's a balancing act. You got to monitor your animal and keep tabs on it and kind of weigh out how it goes. Yeah. Yeah. That's kind of reason I kind of avoid smaller geckos just a little bit. It doesn't take too much to kind of offset the balance, so to speak. Yeah, yeah. You just gotta just gotta be mindful of your animals, you know. And and it may not be for everybody, you know. They're definitely not as 
I don't want to say they're not as hardy or not as bulletproof as some of the other species like leopards and fat tails, but they do require more attentiveness than most other terrestrial geckos. Yeah. So are there any uh, planned additions to your collection in the coming future? No, right, right now I'm kind of focusing on setting up more vivariums. I've usually been in the past. I've not been a decked out vivarium kind of guy. I try to make the husbandry as close to naturalistic as I can, but I have, I don't, I've never gone full bioactive. Uh, I just start dabbling in, you know, cleanup crew, isopods, springtails, that kind of thing. And I really want to expand on that. And I feel like there's not a lot of, I don't want to say bioactive, but for lack of a better synonym, there's not a lot of bioactive enclosures for arid and desert species. And since that's the majority of what I'm keeping now, I really want to try and experiment with different kinds of sandy soils, different kinds of stone, maybe even some kind of drainage layer. So if I can, so if I want to simulate a rainstorm or a, or a yearly or seasonally monsoon, seasonal monsoon, I can kind of do that. Uh, I also really want to dabble with different kinds of arid plants. You know, so many people, we go to Petco, we go to on Amazon and we buy these rubber succulents. Well, why can't I try real succulents, real live succulents? You know, and I'm, I'm doing certain mistings at certain times of the year in certain frequencies. Most of these arid animals, they are drinking dew. Like for example, the, the Sarastis Sarastis, I only give them water. I only, only present them with water every three to five months. And what I'll do is I'll remove the animal from its enclosure. I'll put it in a tub and then I'll give it a water bowl and kind of like show it the water and they get their fill. They drink and drink and drink. And then I'll put them back because I don't want too much humidity. I don't, I don't want the viper to knock its water bowl over, fill the entire enclosure with wet sand. And now you're grooming bacteria and you're just producing in excess levels of humidity, which can lead to hardcore respiratory issues and the like. So I really want to dabble with humidity options in an arid environment, learn more about how to replicate morning dew and kind of figure out a, a better way of keeping arid species opposed to just being on sand. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, so, uh, you live in Florida and you have a venomous collection. So what's it like uh, with the regulations down there? Uh, it's very strict. Um, it's becoming more and more strict every few years. The system that Florida has in place, I think is a very good system. Uh, unfortunately, when you give an inch, they oftentimes will take a mile. And back a few years ago, probably say 2014, they changed a lot of the laws. So essentially the current regulation is you need to apprentice or intern with a venomous handler for a minimum of 1,000 hours per group. And there's currently four groups, uh, colubrids, elapids, vipers, and heloderma. Now, one might say 1,000 hours of hands-on experience with heloderma is immense overkill, right? There are people that would disagree with that and say, no, I think you should do it, blah, 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 blah. Well, I like the structure of it. I like the fact that there is a license. I like the fact that there's annual inspections. I like the fact that your caging requirements and your room has to be up to code to prevent escapes and the like, but it can make it very, very difficult for someone to find a mentor or to find a facility to train at and to learn from because now everyone's apprehensive. And, you know, I don't bring people over my home anymore just because the liability is too extreme. And I essentially have to add that person to my license. And now what they do comes on me. So in the past, Underground Reptiles had a wonderful training program that I actually taught for about 10 years where we would let people come in, get their hours, and then kind of go from there. Um, I plan on starting that back up again. I don't know when. We've kind of been talking about it for about a year or so just because COVID kind of shut things down. But when the time comes, we will be taking more apprentices, so to speak, and trying to get the hours to the people that really want it, you know? And that way they can achieve their dreams and achieve their goals of keeping these amazing animals the right way. Yeah. Yeah. It does sound like a fairly logical system, if a little overreaching. Yeah. That, and that's, that's a great way to put it. It's a very logical system. It's a very respectful system, but it is extremely overreaching. It is. Yeah. As compared to Ohio, where, where I'm from, uh, Regulation on large constrictors is, I think, incredibly stupid. 
because you're allowed to get whatever you want, but as soon as it gets to 12 foot long, oh, you need a license for it. It's like, what's the point of having that license then? Right, right. And I also think that it's difficult in some states because there's a lot of knee-jerk reaction. Um, we've obviously had some some bad things in the media in the past couple of years. Social media doesn't help. Certain individuals doing certain things in the public eye. And that all translates to more and more legislation, whether it be good or bad. Um, I'm not against legislation, but the problem is, is there's not enough of us speaking to the people that are making the rules in order to make educated decisions and not knee-jerk reactions. So are there any uh, group of animals that you haven't really worked a lot with that you uh, do want to work with in the future? Yeah, um, I've I've really got a hankering to get Angolan pythons. Uh, they kind of fill my my African needs, you know. Um, my good friend Casey Canna, he has a, a pretty good group, so he's raising them up. So hopefully, you know, he'll be able to produce in a year or two. And I feel like by then, I'll probably be better set up to to take on a, a larger snake like that. Um, I also think there's more animals in the that I have worked with in the past uh that i'd like to get again uh moroccan cobras being one of them i'm a huge fan i haven't had them in probably a decade and i really would like to get back into it because less and less people are breeding them morocco's close to export so the only real way to get them is captive bred stock which i'm it's fine it's just now i feel like there's new new generations that are not producing things or, or don't know to produce things and that's kind of the stuff I want to focus on. I'd like to get more bitta species, some of the dwarf adders. Uh, the problem is price tag, man. They, they get really pricey, especially in North America. So I don't know. They, I got a lot of animals right now. I've probably got the, the largest collection I've had in a long time. And I'm, I'm, I'm happy with what I got. And I really want to focus on vivariums and, you know, keep them what I got and hopefully produce some offspring in the near future. Yeah. So out of all the stuff you have at the moment, uh, what would you say is your favorite? Oh, the wrinkles, hundred percent. Yeah, yeah, they're just they're they're too cool, man. And I, prior to the animals that I've been working with for about two years now, uh, the only ones I'd ever had were the what we call central locality or like you know Johannesburg, Pretoria locality, which is a a slate gray uh, or or dark gray, almost black coloration with white bands on the neck. And now I've actually got the uh, ability to have some of the banded types from the Eastern Cape as well as from KwaZulu Natal. And just they're carpet pythons with hoods, man. They're gorgeous. They're black and yellow and orange and sunsetting to the hood pattern. And they're just incredible looking animals. And they're a, a grassland species. So I don't have to worry about humidity too much. I do have to worry about ventilation. And I like the fact that they don't get gigantic. You know, like I've got a seven foot ashes cobra. And like that thing's a runt. Uh, the last ashes that I've worked with before this one was almost 11 foot. So I kind of need to focus on <laughs> the size of things because I'm not a big snake guy. So things like water pythons, which I have, love them to death. I get the python feel. I get the python fun, but they don't get gigantic. And I feel like that's a very big appealing thing to me with the wrinkles is because they only get three and a half, four foot on average. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, this is going a bit back in the conversation, but you're talking about how wrinkles were probably like the first snakes to evolve the uh, ability to spit. Um, I remember seeing a PBS Eons video about uh, snakes developing the ability to spit. And yeah, that was the one with the, with the paper plates faces that they had on a stick. Uh, it was like, a, so. it was like a, a plastic plate that was on a stick that had a human face on it to try and get the cobra to spit at the eyes. I don't think so. Okay. Uh, All right. It was a different one about the el evolution origin of the spitting abilities. Spit. Oh, okay, cool. And yeah, uh, basically, let's talk about how they're, they're like looking at it on a molecular genetic level, and they found that the ability to spit actually evolved multiple times in several different lineages of cobras completely unrelated to that and through like you know molecular clockwork they found that they have developed that spitting ability around the same time that hominids first show up in those ecosystems 
Yeah, yeah, I, I remember probably seeing that, basically saying that it's almost adapted to ward off humans um, or, or primates for any, you know, merit. I, I can confidently say that I am not a scientist, and they're probably right, but from all the different spitters that I've worked with my entire life, primarily they're shooting their venom at shiny and moving so for example if you've got your head and you're looking around and you're you're bobbing and weaving like muhammad ali because you're worried that you're going to get blasted what's shiny and moving well your, your eyes are shiny your protective glasses are shiny your face mask is shiny and your head's moving because you're looking around trying not to get you know shot in the face <laughs> so i feel like there's a lot of research that still needs to be done but I can totally see where the facts and the evidence are there to support that, those findings, if that makes sense. Yeah. Sear. So uh, you mentioned you have some uh, pygmy rattlesnakes from uh, the county you're in. Uh, you want yeah, to talk about Palm them? Beach County. Yeah. What are those like? They're fun, man. Uh, they are just big enough to make noise. And we jokingly call them the uh, the wiggling sprinkler because if you've ever been outside in summer and your sprinkler goes, it's that same sound, you know. But this time you're you're walking out in the in the glades and the sand hills and the the sugarcane fields, and all of a sudden you hear a sprinkler. Well, you know it's not a sprinkler, so uh, it's pretty cool, man. And I, I like pygmy rattlers because they're incredibly pretty. And I don't know if it, there's a book out. I can't remember the name of the book. It, I think it's on pygmy rattlesnakes, but the dusky pygmy, which is the southernmost species, which is what we have, which is a uh, Cistrus malarius barbari, or barbary, excuse me. Uh, it's believed that all rattlesnakes evolved from them, which is crazy to think of. You know, you look at something like the Eastern Diamondback being the, one of the biggest venomous snakes in the world, or you look at something like Aruba Island rattlesnakes or Great Basin rattlesnakes or, or even some of the South American neotropical stuff, the Dorisus complex. These are massive animals. And to think that in theory, they may have evolved from our little tiny Florida, you know, little sprinkler. I think that's fascinating. And I really like the fact that I have venomous pit vipers 30 minutes from my house you know it's it's awesome so i've kept a lot of local stuff over the years and i realized you know what i got a lot of local stuff let me find some choice pygmies so me and the girlfriend you know we go out to the cane fields probably once a week and i've got a couple dirt roads that are public access roads that go in between agricultural lands and i was very choosy in selecting my pair but i've got what I would perceive to be an unrelated pair of, uh, of dusky pygmy rattlers from Palm beach County. And they're just fun. You know, they've got these crazy rust, red, orangey saddles on their back and these jet black raccoon masks on their face. They're just, they're just a fun animal, man. They're gorgeous. I love them. Yeah. Yeah. So speaking of the cane fields, uh, you mentioned, you know, you go herbing like once a week or so, uh, outside of your local herping, have there been like any really cool places outside of your local area you've gone herping? Oh yeah. Um, I've been to Arizona a few times, <clears throat> excuse me. I've been to Arizona a few times. I've been to West Texas. Um, I've been to, uh, herping in Georgia, all over Florida, South Carolina, North Carolina, um, parts of Virginia into, I'm actually originally from New Jersey. I moved here when I was very young and I, I go back to visit family and, you know, I've herped East PA, uh, but, hands down i think of the places i've been with the exception of florida because it's home i think arizona is probably my favorite just because you have so many different species and of both lizards and snakes and and amphibians you know i i just was just out there with the npr guys and i've found a canyon tree frog i didn't even know this thing existed and we're looking at this dried a bombed out desert canyon where there's no water anywhere for miles and there's this little tree frog just chilling on the wall just soaking in the heat so i think i think arizona is probably my favorite um i've, I've been to utah but unfortunately i didn't find anything because it's a little bit too cold but i know i definitely want to go back to utah i definitely want to go back to west texas and I'm, I'm dying to go to africa the middle east australia i've got a lot of 
crazy trips planned on the horizon that you know i don't want them to just be delusions of grandeur i want to fulfill it and i think having podcasts like the one i'm on right now is super awesome because we get to chat with so many different international people and make international friends and that only helps with the herping so yeah yeah i've been off to utah once but the only thing i found was some few different small lizard species and uh, a couple of great basins that's cool man that's awesome that's super cool love those basins yeah pretty cool snake very like you very said cool snake. like you said hefty oh yeah and those those utah lutosis man the 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 contrast and color is so dynamic you know these rich velvety blacks and browns over top of the creamy sandy you know base colors oh just lutosis is awesome they're top of my list yeah so is there any species that you want to keep uh that you haven't kept before there's a lot man there's a lot um not to sound like i've been there a lot but i had the the blessing of working with a lot of species over the years whether they were mine or, or for sale or somebody else's or whatever but one species that the two species that pop into mind are both middle eastern one of them is the boya palestini which is the palestinian viper um i'm dying to get some of them i think they're absolutely gorgeous this big heavy-bodied viper from extreme eastern part of the mediterranean and uh, coincidentally uh walternesia egyptica which is the desert black snake or the israeli black cobra uh it's a species of a lapid that has a very small hood they come from the saudi peninsula up into israel the negev sinai and into eastern egypt and it's basically the indigo of the desert it's a high, highly, highly, highly toxic neurotoxic venom. It isn't a lapid. It's in the cobra family or cobra clade of animals, but it's extremely elusive. It's very, very secretive. It only comes out crepuscularly and to hunt during the night. And I really would love to get my hands on some of them. I think that would be really, really cool to do a big bioactive arid desert vivarium, try and make it as negative as I can. And, uh, I think that would be a really cool species to keep. Yeah. And now you mentioned you have a heloderma, a uh, monster, and you mean you also have a ball cap with a heloderma on them. So, and I've worked with uh, quite a few heloderma in the past. So, you know, well, they're all, they have a special place in my heart. Nice. But uh, you want to talk about uh, keeping, keeping those things? Yeah. I, um, I originally wound up getting um i've worked with almost every species of gila except for the guatemalans those are the only ones i've never seen in person and for obvious reasons um highly yeah. protected but originally when we were doing the training hours underground uh when they broke up all the different hours of venomous they nobody had a gila monster to work with and these guys and gals they wanted to get their gila hours so me and two of my buddies said, you know what? Let's just split a baby. At the time, they were about a thousand bucks, and it was like, let's just split a baby three ways. We'll keep it underground. It can be our training lizard, and we we named her Ophelia, <laughs> and uh, Ophelia's been with me for oh man, probably twelve or thirteen years now, and she started off just being a the training lizard, you know, teaching people how to double hook the right way, how to support the lizard's body. So there's no, you know, spinal issues or and keeping everyone safe and not stressing the animal. And eventually we, we went up taming her down and making her handleable, handleable to, to be free handled, um, which is a, a, a tricky topic because I normally would never condone that at all. You know, I do not condone free handling, but there is a certain level of manual manipulation. And with certain venomous species, whether it be their size or their temperament or husbandry issues, you may have to get hands-on, Gila monsters being one of them. You know, they can be very difficult. So it was cool to have her and kind of train. Well, over the years, two of the guys I partnered up with, they kind of were like, ah, just keep her. And Underground was doing a renovation of the retail store. They basically knocked everything down and rebuilt everything and made it all pretty. And because of that, they had to redesign the venomous area and to be up to code and to be up to par. So I went up taking her home and I made her a big 75 gallon enclosure with all these rocks and cactuses and all this cool Gila stuff. And she's just been with me ever since. So uh, a friend of mine, he wound up getting a male and uh, we tried to breed them. It was unsuccessful. Um, 
it came down to them fighting a little bit too much and getting the temperatures right and all that but it's something i might revisit in the future i don't know but i'm, I'm happy with just having her as a pet you know yeah yeah and on the topic of free handling you know we all know of uh you know social social media figures not naming any names right, right. who uh you know do uh free handling or their i guess what was described as click baby behavior sure sure but uh you want to weigh in on that? Um, it's something that I don't normally talk about. Um, I try to basically stay under the radar with that stuff. Um, I feel like people should be allowed to do what they want to do. But the problem is that they're doing it publicly and it casts a bad shadow on other avenues, other venues, other philosophies of our reptile culture and although i'm very much a do whatever makes you happy you know as long as you're safe well that there's that line right there and when i have you know friends calling me and talking about how they their child saw x y and z on youtube or on instagram or whatever and now they want to do that too well that's bad and i think that there's a certain level of professionalism that needs to go into it the problem is that's not what the majority of people want to see and the majority of people being non-herpers non-keepers so it, it's a very it's a very difficult topic um like i said i don't like covering it too much i don't like really commenting on it um but i feel like it can be done extremely better but people are going to do what they want to do the only thing that we can do is try and educate people the best we can and promote safe handling and promote safety overall and just go with it. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, with your podcast, is anything uh, exciting you have looking forward to going forward in the future with those podcasts? Yeah, absolutely. Um, we've got some really really cool guests lined up uh, a lot of international guests which makes it difficult because of time zones you know if it's 7 a.m for me you know my co my co-host nipper he's in london if it's 7 a.m for me it's uh geez two in the afternoon for him and then 10 o'clock at night for australia or if it's you know the middle of the night for us it's the next day for you know india or japan or whoever we're talking to so we have some really cool international guests in on the horizon. Uh, our next one's probably going to be Scott and Ty Iper from Australia. They have a brand new Lapids book that they just came out with. Yeah. So we're going to try and have them on. And uh, we've got some just some awesome people that are keeping some awesome animals. Yeah, I tried to get in that Lapid book, but they're all sold out. So. Yeah, yeah. It, uh, I received my copy, and uh, it it's a light read. <laughs> it's probably about four inches thick. <laughs> So, uh, also any cool guests got lined up for, uh, uh, snakes and snogies. Yeah. Um, we've got some breeders we're going to show off, uh, some, some carpet people, some colubrid people, uh, going to try and get more arachnid and arthropod people. Cause I feel like both in snakes and stogies as well as the venom exchange radio is that when we talk about, you know, herpetoculture we're primarily talking about reptiles and amphibians but there's a whole group of people that also keep arthropoda you know and there's a lot of spider people there's a lot of scorpion people there's a lot of centipede people and and the like you know camel spiders and cave spiders you know whip scorpions vinegar runes you name it we're gonna we're gonna try and bring that to the table as well and kind of get as well-rounded as we can because we're all herpers and let's face it if you're looking for snakes and you find a scorpion it's equally awesome you know if you're looking for turtles and you find some you know uh, uh fishing spiders like that's awesome you know why not yeah. it all kind of coincides uh do you keep any uh, arthropoda i mean other than feeders no not anymore i i'm a very big scorpion guy i used to keep probably oh, probably around 100 scorpions and most of them were were in the booth that i group or group booth that i clade and it's just a lot of work man when you got a hundred deli cups and a hundred mouths to feed that small it just it gets work so i've slowly dwindled down over the years i currently don't keep any um i i think i'll probably get something in the near future but if i do it's going to be one or two individual animals and i'm going to try and go back to that whole you know arid bioactivity try and make a a better setup and not just keep you know 
bugs in the deli cup on sand. So, yeah. Um, but speaking of snakes and stokies, uh, I plan on thinking about getting a thorn scrub rat from Justin. So nice, excellent. Yeah, man, the, dude, those so snakes got real thorn. bad. <laughs> Not so much that I want a thorn scrub, just so uh, we can finally stop talking about it. <laughs> I get it, man. I mean, dude, those snakes are awesome. I think they get a bad rap. Um, <clears throat> they're not the friendliest of snakes. They are very, very defensive. But with patience and keeping the animal calm, I know people that have like five, six foot ones that are pretty dog tame. It just took a long time of working and getting nipped by as babies to to get them to that point, you know. But they're they're gorgeous animals. It's it's. It's got Western diamondback patterning in a rat snake body. I mean, what's not to love? Yeah. Uh, I, you kind of like flirt out and pause out there for a moment. I don't know if you heard what I said. No, no, sorry. It, it did lag a little bit. What was that? Uh, I was talking to him about it. And he's talking about price. And I was like, uh, really that much for a, a butch corn snake? more or less <laughs> but yeah they're but pretty uh, i do need to keep some panther they're... go ahead no i was saying that they're they're they are the uh the big rougher tougher brother to the corn snake all right that should fix the problem right there you know what the problem was, so. All right. Yeah, but I do need to keep some pantherophis at the moment. Yeah. I do need to get back at the keeping some pantherophis. I mean, I have some, like, other North American colubers, but. So, uh, outside of venomous, where's some uh, non-venomous stuff that you keep? Well, I'm a big fan of North American colubrids, uh, king snakes mostly. Um, I've got Same. some goini. Yeah, I've got some some goini. I've got some outer banks. Uh, I've got some Everglades rat snakes. I've got some pyromelina, pyromelana, however you want to say it. Um, and then I also got some Mexican black kings that come from a very specific locality in Mexico. And I also have our, our good friend Vic Lerano in Tampa, uh, myself and Billy Hunt got together and he produced some amazing Honduran milk snakes that are very, very unique in color and pattern. So we kind of like dispersed the clutch amongst the three of us and we're working with them. So I'm really excited about those two. Uh, I've also got some Trans-Pecos rat snakes and uh, Okatee corns from Lee Abbott. So we're we're rocking and rolling colubrid-wise. Yeah. I uh, used to work with a pair of uh, Trans-Pecos rats back in my college days. And they're pretty fun snake. Yeah, man. They're great. Great. Also like Sassy. The, yeah. Ours weren't really... Ours are actually pretty good handlers, but... Guess they're kind of the exception to the rule. <laughs> yeah, no, m mine doesn't bite me, but it's always looking for the next meal. So it, it thinks it's a king snake. It's it, it it's been watching the other king snakes go crazy on food, so it's got to emulate it. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, I love their pattern. They look their pattern looks like something you see on like a side of some Navajo pottery or something like that. Yeah, yeah, that's a great way to describe it. That's literally exactly what it is. I love it. It makes you wonder if the pottery came from the snake. Yeah, or the snake came from the pottery. Who knows? Yeah, right. Um, yeah, but you know, I, I keep some uh, North American colubrids as well at the moment. I have a adult male. It's like Florida patternless going eye king. I don't know, cool. but you know, reg got juvenile female wild standard wild type king, Florida king. Nice. Got some. Got a pair of uh gopher snakes. So don't know the exact locality i'm not i'm not that skilled with them i just saw they're like 150 dollars for the pair so i just bought it up but sure man hey dude gophers are awesome love gophers yeah and let's see what else uh honduran uh juvenile honduran milk snake so 
Cool. Yeah, man, I I'm like, a big fan of Hondurans. Yeah. Yeah, it's kind of fun, you know, doing this podcast and talking to a lot of people uh, who have, you know, fairly large collections. And here I am with like not even 20 snakes. I'm like, like, oh, hey, little me. No, nah, man, you can't look at it like that. You know, it's, it's, you have what you have and you, and you love those animals. And nobody says that the more snakes you have, the, the cooler you are or whatever. You know, I think that there's been, there's been times in my life when I only had three snakes. And I think that you work with what you love and you work with what you have. And if you want more and you can, you can swing it, whether it be financially or because of space or what have you or time then rock and roll, you know, I'll never judge someone for having, you know, one snake or a hundred. Yeah. Yeah. That's kind of, that's a good way to put it. But yeah. I like you're saying how, uh, you, you love, uh, Australian stuff and, uh, the knobtails are kind of your fix for that. For me, yeah. it, my, my Aussie fix is the pythons. So Australasian pythons are kind of my one weakness. It's good, man. Snakes, so. it's, a, it's a good weakness to have, man. Yeah. Yeah. My yeah. first snake, first snake I actually ever owned was a, uh, still having this uh, male uh, IJ carpet. So nice. That's awesome. I love IJs, man. And they're the only carpet we can still get fresh blood into the hobby. So uh, I think in the next five to 10 years, there's going to be a lot more really, really cool IJ carpets coming out. It's going to be awesome. Yeah. And I just picked up a juvenile female. So hopefully a few years from now. Get some eggs pumping. Nice. That's the way to do it, man. I love it. I'm I'm definitely team Morelia. Yeah. But let's see what else I have. I have a adult female a diamond carpet that gonna next few weeks I'm gonna take over to my friend's place to put it with his uh pair. Oh cool. Very so, cool. And let's see here. Got a pair of uh Eastern Stimpsons that I just looking at her last night, the female looks like she might be ovulating. That's at least how it looks, but excellent. Yeah, man. Yeah, and, put, them, put them together. See what happens, you know? Yeah. And let's see. Here. Oh yeah. Can't forget the scrubs. I love scrubs. So. Excellent. Excellent. I actually, uh, I had aspirations of doing a lot of scrub projects and hindsight. I'm glad I didn't because I feel like I was, my eyes were bigger than my stomach. And I realized that I'm too short and stocky for long snakes. So <laughs> I'm going to stick to my little guys and, and, and be content with that. <laughs> uh, yeah. Keep stuff with a similar reach that you, as you. So to yeah, speak. Ex exactly. Exactly. You got it. Yeah. But then uh, rounding out my collections here, got a pair of uh, Dominican red mountain boas and that's awesome. Yeah. Originally bred by a uh, Paul Bonnard and they're like a really like, high high red bloodline like lump like when they say red they're they really do, do mean red so that's great man those are awesome animals awesome awesome animals yeah and uh just a random black and white tegu and a trio of juvenile uh smooth front caimans so yeah I, I heard i heard you on i was just listening to your episode with fadi uh, daffy excuse me and uh and dude that's awesome you got a trio of caimans man that's so much yeah. fun awesome awesome little water lizards i love it yeah only crocodile can keep in ohio without a permit so yeah actually one of my worst bites i've ever taken was entirely my fault and it was on a four foot smooth front and what i was Ooh. doing is I had, uh, I was holding the animal by the head and supporting in, in my right hand. And I was supporting the back end with my left hand. And it was in a big, like 120 gallon tank. And I had just cleaned the tank. The tank was immaculate. And I go to put the, the, the came in the tank and I loosened my grip just, just enough for it to swing around and grab all four fingers on my right hand. And it wasn't trying to it wasn't trying to hurt me it was kind of like hey man let go of me you know yeah and it just gave me a quick little pop and the worst part was it wasn't the pain it wasn't that i got bit by a crocodilian it was the fact that now the water was ruined because <laughs> it had all my blood in the water from my hand <laughs> and i had to take the lizard out again drain the whole tank again so yeah yeah but crocodilians are awesome man yeah. i love it 
Yeah, I would not want to take a bite from a four foot paleosuke, especially a trichinatus. Yeah. Because I got those yeah. uh laterally compressed siphodonic teeth, so it's a little bit sharper bite. Oh, dude, it was it was like 30 needles in my fingers at once. It was rough. Yeah. So yeah, look at the bright side. At least it wasn't a 12 foot gator. Yeah, exactly. hundred percent. hundred percent. So yeah. But uh outside of that, do you how much work do you do with crocodilians? I avoid them like the plague. <laughs> Wise man. Yeah, I um I've I've played with a lot of different species. Not play. That's a that's a wrong word. I've I've worked yeah. with several different species. Um most of them were in a zoo style capacity whether it be uh, private breeding facilities or you know non-accredited facilities i should say um and i realized that it's, it's just not for me man I, I respect them i love them i think they're incredible and i give kudos to guys like you that that really put their heart and soul into it i just know that it's it's just not my cup of tea you know so when we go out to the glades we see alligators every day and uh i i honestly I'm not one of those guys that's like, oh, go in the water and grab it. Like that's that's not me. I'm more like, hey, let's get pictures of it and see how comfortable we can get that 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 water lizard to get closer, you know. So yeah. And I love crocodilians and I'm with you on that one. So <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I've I've probably worked with the alligators more than anything else. Um, I used to do a lot of presentations with animals, uh, college lecture halls, you know, summer camps, bar mitzvahs, whatever you want to call it. And uh, so I've got a lot of alligator time under my belt, but everything was under five foot just because you got to be mobile with it and yeah. it was easier. So, yeah. Let's see. Uh, in terms of uh, lizards, do you keep anything other than the uh, knobtails? Yeah, um, I keep... Uh, Rhodesian girdle tail lizards. Um, I'm a huge Cordillidae junkie. Uh, me and my buddy Marcus, we've probably had oof eight or nine species over the years, including small gigantus. Um, and I, I realized that if if someone's going to work with Cordillidae, it really is a, a group of animals that you really need to focus on because even though the things are damn near bulletproof in order to take care of them properly they really need attention so right now i'm only working with the one species i've got uh, i think it's two hold on there's three of those so yeah it's 2.2 um and three of them were ones i produced their holdbacks so hopefully uh they'll be ready to, the three of those will be ready to breed next year and uh do what happens you know but that's really the so the gila monster the Rhodesian girdles and the geckos. That's about it for right now. That's and that's enough lizards for me. I'm, 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 I'm a snake guy through and through. I'm, I'm too lazy for lizards. Yeah, pretty much the same here as well. Especially since uh, I don't really have a ton of room, so the tag pretty much takes up all the room that any other lizard would take. So I get it, man. It's like having a leathery dog. Yeah, I wish he was as nice as a dog. <laughs> it's just so food aggressive basically whenever i go in to feed him he starts jumping and uh let's just say uh the height and trajectory of his jumps he leaves a very high probability of him grabbing onto something very sensitive so <laughs> i can imagine i can imagine that's very, so cool though especially he's a he's actually a uh wild cop florida feral so oh wow very interesting yeah guess uh i don't know the guy's name or all the details we have but that was uh back before you know florida completely banned tegu ownership and all that you know it's right. a, that guy that went out, you know just caught ferals and sold him out of state okay very cool so he's been bounced that guy's been bounced around a few places he first went to uh uh the university i used to go to then basically he started fighting the other tegu that he's with so then went to a friend of mine and then my friend moved down to Florida. So he had to get rid of it. So now it's with me. So. All right. Well, that's cool, man. You got a cool lizard. I like it. Yeah. A little bit of history. So. That's awesome, man. It's awesome when you can, you know, know the history of your animal to the best of our abilities. Yeah. Let's see. Let's see. Let's see. Uh, anything else you want to talk about right now? I mean, yeah, man, I think that, uh, 
your podcast is great. I love the the eclectic group of guests that you've had on. You've had some some great individuals, some private keepers, some scientists, some old school herpers. I think you're doing a great job, man. I keep it up. Oh, thanks. Yeah, I appreciate you having me on. And uh, so, and people are looking for you. Where can they find you at? Uh, you can find me on Instagram. That's probably the best way. It's knobtails.ig. And then there's also an Instagram page for Venom Exchange Radio. Uh, you can check out the Herpeticulture Network. Uh, we do a live show, Snakes and Stogies, every Monday night at 9 p.m. East Coast. And the Venom Exchange Radio as well can be found anywhere that you get podcasts. Apple, Spotify, Google Play, whichever your podcast selection of choice is. So. All right. Well, thanks for coming on. Thanks, man. I appreciate you having me. It's my pleasure.